This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. My name is Pastor Wes. I am one of six elders here at Redemption Church Alhambra, and I love being here. I love pastoring at this church. I love the diversity of our leadership. I love looking out into the congregation and seeing the diversity of our people. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love being here. And if you're just joining us, what we decided to do was go through the entire book of Mark, the whole book. So we're going to spend a year and some change going through the book of Mark. And today we're in Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23. Now, this is the first church that I've ever pastored at. It's not the first church that I've been a pastor at, but it's the first church that I've ever pastored at that actually goes through entire books of the Bible. I've been to other churches that do it. You know, I've attended other churches that do it, but I've never pastored at a church that does it. The cool thing about pastoring at a church that goes through entire books of the Bible is it prevents people like me from eisegeting a text. And what eisegeting is, or to eisegete a text, is to take a text out and start building your own thoughts around it. That's what that means. You, you, you don't have the context. You just you take, the, you take the text out and you just start. Okay, here's an example. Philippians 4.13, the biggest eisegetical text ever known to man. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can imagine a bodybuilder, right? going to L.A. Fitness, right? And they just became a Christian. And so they go to L.A. Fitness, and they're like, you know what? I want 8,000 pounds on that side, and I want 8,000 pounds on that side. I don't care if you got to go to other L.A. Fitnesses to get the weights. Get the weights. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so here he goes. 16,000 pounds. I'm going to deadlift this. Bends down. And he tries and he strains and he, can't get, and he can't get the weights up. So what happens is he loses all faith in Jesus. And then his, his, he, just isoged, uh, he just did that text. He isogeted that text so he loses all faith in Jesus. He doesn't like Christianity no more. He can't stand who Jesus is and he can't stand being a Christian. So he loses all faith and becomes an atheist. So I'm warning you, don't isogeate. <laughs> don't isogeate because that's exactly what a happen. But one cool thing is, is as we're in Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23, is uh, what we want to do at Redemption is keep the gospel that we're reading in a narrative form, which means a story form. So we want to keep it in a story form. I am going to zoom in on a few verses, okay? But in order to keep it in story form, we want to give you the whole context. That's why we're doing 1 through 23. So the verses that I do zoom in on, you guys can go home and be like, oh, okay. This is what Wes meant, or dang, Wes was way off right here, because this is what this said, and this is what this said, and he's way off. So you guys can do that, all right? So you guys can keep your pastors accountable. One danger that I find myself doing because I'm reading the Bible in a narrative story form, one danger that I find myself in is, is, is the hypostatic union of Christ. I'll, I'll explain that. One danger is because uh, instead of systematically breaking down what Jesus is talking about, I'm like just going through story form. And instead of systematically breaking down what Mark is trying to say, I'm going through story form. And so the hypostatic union of Christ, which simply means that Jesus is God, 100% God, and he is 100% man. 
That's the hypostatic union. He's 100% God, 100% man, and then he comes together in the form of Jesus. He's still 100% God, still 100% man. This is my problem when I'm doing narrative-style reading, especially through the Gospels, is when I get to the cross, it is hard for me for some reason to be like, God died on the cross. It's hard. It's hard to think about. Wait a second. God died on a cross. And as Christians, we know that death means separation from God, which is like, wait a second. God died on the cross. Separation from God is death. What in the world? So that means Jesus, the son of God, on the cross was separated from the father, right? God died on the cross, which shows the weightiness of my sin. But when I think of the hypostatic union of Christ and I go to the other side, the man Jesus dying on the cross, then warm fuzzies start coming in my belly, right? Warm fuzzies. Why? Because I can relate. Because he has flesh, and his fleshly hands were pierced. And he has blood pouring down, and if you cut me, I bleed red. So I can kind of relate to that. I can relate to that. And But my spirit, I thank God that he has renewed my spirit. And all of you that understand what I'm talking about, that means he must have renewed your spirit. Even though you can't comprehend, you can actually apprehend that God died on the cross. You can, you can even though it's hard to know about but you can just believe that it's true because that's what the bible tells us and so god died on the cross that had to have been a weighty sin for that propitiation to happen and what propitiation is it is it's an exchange god had to die on the cross why so that my filthy rags can be placed on him and god's righteous robe can be placed on me it took the death of god to do that took the death of God for the great exchange of my heavy burden of death. Understand this. When you're not in Christ, you're dead like a zombie, like the walking dead. I love that series. But that's you. And so what happens is, is on that cross, God takes that heavy burden of death and places it on his son. So it's our sin that separates the father from the son. And out of that, Jesus in the exchange, in the propitiation, gives us life. And life more abundant. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. So don't forget about the, don't forget about the hypostatic union of Christ. And some of you, I just educated you. So you go, go out and be like, yo. What you know about that hypostatic union, son? 100% God, 100% man. You can't forget that when we read through the Gospel of Mark. And today, what I want to do is I want to spend time on exposing sin. I want to try my hardest with the help of C.H. Spurgeon to get to the root of sin. C.H. Spurgeon is the man, if y'all don't know. And just a side note, my wife and I were planning on having one more kid. So that, yeah, oh my goodness, somebody's like, oh my goodness. Five kids, that'll be five for us. And then we're done. I don't know how we're going to be done, but we're going to be done. We're debating on how that's going to go about, but we're, we'll be done. It's a, it's a great debate in the little family about how we're going to be done, but we're going to be done. So after the five, so after, so, so, so if this kid, the fifth kid that we have, if it's a boy, his name is going to be Charles Spurgeon Little. If it's a boy, so that, yeah, yeah. That's how much Spurgeon has impacted my life. And if it's a girl, I don't know what her name is going to be. <laughs> I guess Lynn cares, but if it's a girl, you know, we'll name her something. But one thing, that I <laughs> one thing that I do know is that I am indebted. I was listening to a sermon 10 years ago, a John Piper sermon 10 years ago. I know I look super young. You're like, what, were you 15 when you were listening to the sermon? No. But 10 years ago, I was listening to this sermon, and, and um, John Piper said, you, what, when, when I listen to a Piper sermon, 
it feels like he's like just talking to me and nobody else. And I could have sworn I heard this. He said, Wesley Little, this is what you need to do. I swear I heard that. I know I heard him say that. Wesley, I'm talking to you. You're my boy. This is what you need to do. You need to have somebody that's living and somebody that's dead that you glean from. Okay, so I was like, cool, Piper, I'll do that. I'll have a living person. That's you. I'm going to glean from you. And my dead person's going to be C.H. Spurgeon. Now, I don't know the true definition of gleaning, so I don't know if what I'm doing when I glean from them is just straight up jacking them or if I'm really gleaning from them because I think, I think it's gleaning. I don't think I'm, I'm jacking them. But I know one thing that I'm indebted to Piper and to Spurgeon. And I thank God for their ministries because of those faithful men. They were able to show me like a, a depth of God that I probably wouldn't experience. And they were able to bring to life his word. So I am in great debt to Piper and Spurgeon. So while I was going over this text, which is Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23, there were three things that got me that I was like, okay, this is the aim. I'm trying to expose sin here. I got to get to the root of it. And the first thing that popped out was the same as them. The same as them. Some of us in this world, and maybe even some of us in this room, are modern day Pharisees and scribes. Why do I say that? Well, because some of us may hold to fables or man-made traditions. Some of us may hold to things that aren't even scriptural, but we swear that they're biblical. Some of us, for whatever reason, we try our hardest to discredit Jesus and his church and his work, the same as them. Second thing that stood out to me is sometimes we can be the same as us. Majority of us sitting in this room today, we are professing Christians. Christianity, that's the flag that we raise but we're going to read a little bit later and talk about how the disciples themselves were so caught up in man-made tradition that they, too, were a little bit nervous about Jesus' teaching when he was correcting the Pharisees and the scribes. His own peeps were nervous. And then finally, the third thing that, that stood out to me as I was going over this text, which is Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23. When I ask us to stand to read that, if you guys aren't there, oh, my goodness, because I said Mark chapter 7, 1 through 23, about a million times. So if you, if so, when we do stand and read, if you're like, oh, man, where we at? Where we at? Oh, goodness. Goodness. So the third thing that stood out to me is the same as him. Jesus does a great job at showing not only the Pharisees and scribes what the real issue is, but he shows everyone what the real issue is. And the real issue is our hearts. And we need a heart transformation. The heart of every person is deceitfully wicked and needs to be transformed. Understand this, there is no hope outside of the living hope of Christ. And there's no hope outside of Christ. And us being conformed to his image is the only way that we can access this hope and be the same as him. That's how that works. So let's jump right into the first point. Right into the first point. The same as them. Last week, my brother, Josh, <laughs> preached about miracles, right? So he preached about miracles. He preached in Mark chapter 6, and he preached about miracles and how Jesus was feeding thousands of people and how he was walking on water. And then he got to the end of Mark chapter 6 and started talking about when Jesus and them crossed over the sea. They got into this town, and people recognized Jesus. And so they came to him, and in the middle of the marketplace, Jesus started healing all kinds of people. That was the end of Mark chapter 6. Jesus started healing all kinds of people. People come to Jesus, just touch his cloak or whatever, and they're getting healed. Touch the hem of his garment, they're getting healed. Jesus probably laying hands on them. They're getting healed, but all these people are getting healed. So what I want you guys to do is imagine with me. Please try your hardest to use your imagination. And there are probably some people in here that haven't used their imagination in so long. You're welcome. 
I'm letting you do it. So please try your hardest to use your imagination. Picture Jesus and his disciples in the middle of the city and thousands upon thousands of people. And 45% of those people are sick. And here they come, wave after wave, coming to Jesus. That is my jam, by the way. Wave after wave. That's my jam. So all these people are coming, right, to get healed by Jesus. And Jesus is healing them and healing them and healing them and healing them. And then, like, the last wave of people are coming, and the disciples, they were doing their business, but it was getting late. And so what the disciples decided to do was to prepare food. They're like, you know what? It's getting late. This last wave of people coming. Jesus, you got this? We're going to go make some food, all right? Jesus like, cool, go make the food. And so they go make and prepare the food, all right? Are you guys imagining this? Can you all see it? Are you with me? Is your mind's eye there? Are you in the city? People are getting healed. Okay, so there they are. And so the last wave's coming through. And now I want you to imagine the last person coming to get healed by Jesus. Imagine a man or a woman, old or young, it doesn't matter. Imagine that person being escorted because they're sick. Don't forget, these are sick people coming to Jesus. So that person's being escorted to Jesus. This person probably doesn't have a lot of words to say because they're sick, but their heart is probably full of great faith. Why? Because they see everything that's going on around them. Wave after wave of people being healed, going back to the city, talking about how wonderful Jesus is and professing the Messiah and that he has come. And so this last person comes with a heart full of faith, and Jesus either touches him or her, or he lays, or he or she lays her hands on the garment, and they're healed. And then they, the last person, goes back to the city, worshiping God, loving Jesus, talking. The buzz of the town is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the healer. I was once sick, and now I'm healed by Jesus, the great Messiah. And so now what Jesus does after that last person gets healed is he turns around as the disciples are already eating. They're getting busy with the food, and they're already eating. And then all of a sudden, this last wave of people come. What? There's another wave of people. So this last wave of people come, but they don't look like the townspeople. Why? Because this is the Pharisees, the religious people, who think they know everything there is to know about getting to God. And along with them are the scribes, the Johnny Cochran's of the law. They know everything it is to know about God and his law. So you got the Pharisees and the scribes, the last wave coming. And as they come, they don't care about anything that's going on around. They're coming through a city where everybody is buzzing about the Messiah and how he's healing. They don't care about that because they've been following Jesus ever since his ministry started, trying their hardest to catch him in some kind of predicament. So they come, and they're trying to catch Jesus in some kind of predicament, and so they're ignoring all these things around them. And when they approach Jesus and his disciples, what do they do? They say, hey, Jesus, what in the world is going on here? Your disciples are eating, and they didn't wash their hands. They're defiling themselves. And I can picture Peter and John and maybe even Matthew with the church's chicken biscuit in their hand and look over like, oh, snap. They're right. We didn't wash our hands. Because not washing your hands before you ate was a tradition laid by the Jewish elders. So the Jewish elders laid that tradition. It's like you have to wash your hands before you eat or you're going to be defiled as a person. And so this is what the Pharisees and the scribes saw. This is our chance to get in. So now we're going to get in and we're going to be like, okay, they're not following the laws of the, that the uh, elders have set before us. Look at them defiling themselves. I wonder how many people in our world today, and even to narrow it down, how many people are sitting in this room today that have the same heart as the Pharisees and the scribes? The same heart. You could care less about what's going on around. 
You could care less about what's going on in the church. Oh, if you could just catch something wrong with the Bible. There has to be some kind of contradiction in the Bible. I've got to figure out. I know it's there. Oh, if you could just dispel what you believe is a myth. Oh, man, if I could just expose Christianity for the myth that it is, maybe my boyfriend would stop dragging me to church. If I could just discredit Jesus, his church, and his work, maybe, just maybe, my husband will snap out of it. Because, you know, ever since my husband got saved, He's and fell and, and was captured by the love of Jesus. All he talks about is church and Jesus. So if I could just find something to snap him out of that. Oh, man, if I could just find something to discredit Jesus and snap my girlfriend out of that spell. Why? Because, man, I loved having sex with her. I loved it. Man, I love doing all those things that we shouldn't have been doing. Oh, I love that. Oh, if I could just snap her out of that spell that she's under, we can go back to a life that we once had. Oh, man, if I could just discredit the Bible, then my parents won't wake me up early anymore. If I could just discredit the church and the Bible and find something wrong with Jesus, then I don't have to get up on Sundays and come to church. And I could tell my parents, why? Why are we going to that church? Do you know this and that about Christianity? Oh, I know that there's husbands probably in this room that are only here and endure 90 minutes of my preaching, Aaron's preaching, Wayne's preaching, Josh's preaching, Kyle's singing, all that stuff. They endure that because they don't want to hear their wives every single day talking about how they need to go to church. And so they come and they'd rather endure that. But they don't come seeking the Messiah. They come trying their hardest to find something wrong so that they can go to their wife and be like, look, this is why we shouldn't be going to this church. Modern day Pharisees and scribes hoping, hoping that they could find something to discredit this whole thing so that they can go back to a life that they once knew. Some of us in this room are the same as them. Now the same as us. It's wild when I think about the masses and I think about the timing of the Pharisees. The Pharisees came in to discredit Jesus and, and his disciples after all the healings have taken place. It was strange because when you're doing stuff, being the outreach pastor at this church, for whatever reason, it's easy for me to get pumped up when big things are happening. Like when we're doing an event and a group of people are there. It's like, yeah, look at all these people. The spirit must be moving. Jesus is definitely in the building. Look at all these people. It's so easy to get hyped up. But that is not the case, is it? Because we have this Our City workshop now that David Nava led. We had our first one, and he's an electrician, and he showed us how to change out, like, light fixtures and fix things and all kinds of stuff, but it was only for eight people. We set it up that way. We're eight people. We set it up on the city where eight people come and learn, and guess what? Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit was moving, but it's weird when the masses are there that you get this extra mm-mm-mm. So it's interesting that the Pharisees and scribes approached the disciples when the masses were gone, which is probably why when they were eating their biscuit, right? They stopped and paused and was like, oh, snap, they got a point. Because you got to understand, when they said that to the disciples, they grew up in this tradition. They grew up in this culture. So they knew what the Pharisees and scribes were talking about. They knew what they were talking about. Like, oh, man, they brought up that. Man, they brought that up, and that's right. We didn't watch it. And I bet you they were Jewish men, and their hands were probably super black. So you could tell, like, ooh, y'all defiled. Like, so they probably like, oh, man, we can't lie about it. But the crazy thing about it is, Jesus turned to join them, and he was going to eat with them. They were doing things that Jesus wasn't even going to condemn them for. They were with 
the Savior. And they were doing these things. And Jesus was about to join them. And it's interesting how even being with the Savior sometimes fails us. They were with Jesus. And they still got caught up in their man-made traditions. Even being with the Savior, it didn't stop them. They wanted some kind of explanation. They started questioning Jesus. At that time, being with Jesus wasn't enough. Oh, the patience, the patience. Don't forget about the hypostatic union, right, of who Jesus is. Because of the patience that he must have for his elect. He has to have patience. Oh, the grace that he must have for the chosen. When I look at that and I see the disciples at that moment, what I see now because of the God-man, Yahshua, what I see is sanctification taking place. These guys are walking with Jesus. They're talking with Jesus. They went through Mark chapter 6 with Jesus, feeding thousands, walking on water, healing all these people. They've been through all this stuff, and yet still they weren't completely transformed, and they needed Jesus to talk to them. Explain to us, God, what's happening. Oh, this is sanctification, and this is the beauty of our Savior because he started explaining to them what was going on, and so the disciples and us in this room have the ability to grow in him learn. We can trust in Jesus. We have faith in our Messiah as it's being made perfect. That's sanctification, guys. And those disciples sounds a lot like us in this room. Now, if you have your Bibles, you should already be there, but open them up to Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23, and stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. And I hope that the two stories that I told of, of the Pharisees and the disciples would bring to life the scripture that we're about to read. That's my aim. So as we read this, I've been trying my hardest to pull at your imagination. So as we read this, I'm hoping that God just enlightens his word and the words pop off the screen and you can see it as if it's a movie. So Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23, and this is what it says. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, they said, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you, scribes and Pharisees, say, if a man tells his father, Father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And then Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. 
There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And then Jesus said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. And then Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for putting your word on display this morning. Thank you for Mark chapter 7 and also putting Isaiah and Exodus on display as well. Although many of us in this room may not participate in the Corbin tradition, there are other man-made traditions that we hold to. And we hold to them above the fulfilled law in Christ. And when we do that, we're chaining and we're shackling ourselves to the hooks of religion instead of being brought in and captured by the prison of your love, God. Forgive us. Help us. Help us today, Father, to see what our hearts truly look like without you and just how much we need you to change us and to sustain our hearts. Be with us today, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. I got a few minutes as I move into the third and final point, the same as him. Before it's all said and done, each and every single person on the planet should have the same goal in mind. We should all have the same goal in mind, okay? Unfortunately, that's not true. We all don't have the same goal in mind, but every single person should pursue the glory of the Son of God. That's what we should be doing. Every single person should pursue the glory of the Son of God. Whether you're a pastor, do that. Pursue that. For the glory of Christ, whether you're a teacher, do that. Pursue that for the glory of Christ, whether you're a cook or a nurse or a doctor or any kind of leader or a student, do that in pursuit of the glory of Christ. All of our goals should be the same because all of life should be all for Jesus. Every single person should be a reflection of the radiant glow of Jesus. Every single person. And how do we do that? By capturing his work. How do we capture his work? It's through belief and it's through faith in our hearts. And when we do that, we're conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. Oh, to be the same as Jesus is the only way that we won't be the same as them. To be the same as Jesus is the only way we won't be the same as us. (laughs) The problem with them and us is the same problem. It's our hearts. Our hearts, what's going on with our hearts? Oh, in verse 14, I hope you'll notice that this lesson that Jesus was about to teach wasn't just for the hypocritical Pharisees and scribes, but this lesson was for everybody. Jesus called the whole town back and said, disciples, get out here. Pharisees and scribes, let's talk. He called the whole town. Now about that uh, Corbin tradition that Jesus said, 
you know, about the father. This is a modern-day Corbin tradition. Say that your mother or father are older, and um, they're in a nursing home, which is unfortunate, but that's the American way. So they're in a nursing home. So your mother and father, or either or, they call you, their kid, their child. They say, hey, kid, child, I'm in need of a little bit of money. Can you help your mother out? And you say this, I would help you, but Corbin, I've given my money. I've already tithed to the church. So that money that I used to tithe to the church, I could have given that to you, but I decided to give it to the church. So I'm free of giving you money. That's their tradition. That was the tradition of the elders. That was Corbin. That was something that they did. They were freed from taking care of their father or mother if they gave money to the religious people. That's Corbin. Isn't that, that's just wild to me that that's what it is. And so they used that and made void the commandment given to us in Exodus that says, honor your mother and father, and thus your days will be long. Man, they made void the commandment of God by their tradition. So Jesus pretty much called the entire town back to himself to teach this lesson. This lesson was about the heart. This is what Jesus wanted to teach. He wanted to teach about the heart, and he wanted to teach about what truly defiles a person. It's wild when I think about the Pharisees and scribes and how they were pointing to all these outward things trying to discredit Jesus. I told you they walked past an entire town that was being healed. They could care less about thousands and thousands of people eating. They walked past this because they had an agenda. They wanted to discredit Jesus. They ignored all of that just to say these jokers aren't washing their hands. I wonder how many of us modern day Pharisees and scribes ignore everything that the church is doing so we can discredit the king. So we can discredit the Savior. So we can discredit his people, discredit his church. We ignore every good thing that the church is doing through the power of the Spirit. Why? Because we have our own agendas. Many of us, many of us in this room are like, oh, I can't stand the church. You know why? I'm going to discredit them. You know why? Because I was in a bind and they didn't come to my rescue. I needed help and no one was around me. Oh, I'm telling you there's modern day Pharisees and scribes in this room. I'm telling you. You don't walk close to Jesus. You don't walk close to his people. But man, you could point the finger like the best of them. Maybe if some of the Pharisees and scribes of that day would have walked closer with the disciples, would have walked closer with Jesus, they would have gained an understanding of God and his word. And that would have penetrated their hearts and thus changed them. Does Nicodemus ring a bell? Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees as well. But what he decided to do was, oh, man, Jesus is doing these things. You know what? I'm going to get closer to Jesus and figure out what's really going on. And by his pursuit and getting closer to Jesus, Nicodemus found out how to be born again. But what do we do? We stand on the outside and we point our fingers. And we point our fingers. We don't get close. We think we know what the church is supposed to be doing. So we stand on the outside and point our fingers. We don't get in there. We don't know how to be born again. That's what we do. That's what we do. The reason why those Pharisees did that and didn't want to get closer to God and the reason why many of us do the same thing is because without Jesus, we are at war with God. There's enmity between man and God. You are at war without a transformed heart, without the renewing of the spirit, without Jesus Christ. You are battling against God. 
no matter how moral you think you are, battling against him. And that's exactly what these Pharisees and scribes were doing. They were at war with God, and they wanted to defeat God. They wanted to discredit Jesus. Why? So that they could go back to living life before Jesus had his ministry. That's why they did that. I hope you see what I see in verse 20. In verse 20 of the text, it's the very heart of the Pharisees and scribes being exposed in verse 20. The very heart of the Pharisees and scribes is what defiles them. Think about this. I told you all these things going on. They could care less and ignored all those things. And they went and said that these disciples were defiling themselves because they didn't wash hands. Get this. The very words coming out of the Pharisees and scribes' mouth proved that they were the ones that were defiled. They were the ones. Because what's inside comes out of the mouth. So they were causing all these accusations against the disciples. They were the actual ones being defiled. So what I want to do is warn you and caution you. Be careful for hanging out with those people that do that. They ignore everything that the church is doing. And all they do is want to point fingers and say, well, this is going bad. And that's going bad. Oh, don't trust Pastor West. Don't do this. Don't do that. Oh, ignore them because I'm telling you, when you do that, that proves that there's something in your heart. And you're probably defiled running around trying for your own selfish gain to do away with Jesus, discredit him in his church and his work. That very act shows that you may be defiled within yourself. That was the lesson being taught. What a gangster lesson. The list of sins given in verse 21 and 22, they're astonishing to me. I mean, they leave no room for anyone to boast in being freed from sin apart from the work of Christ. The list is crazy. The list starts with evil thoughts. Do you guys see that? It starts with evil thoughts, and that's plural, by the way. It's not an evil thought. It starts with evil thoughts, and then the list ends. There's 13 of them. The list ends with foolishness. And I was getting Spurgeon's take on this, and he said that this passage leads way to tell you that foolishness actually means here the absence of thought. And so now you're starting with evil thoughts. And all these sins in between, what does it lead to? Foolishness, which is the absence of even thinking. It's amazing to me. That's astonishing to me. The range, Christians, we cannot escape this range of sin. We can only be saved from it. We can't do it on our own. We can't escape this. We can only be saved from it. And I thank you, Jesus, for saving us. These 13 items listed in this list of sin, it's not exhaustive, but what these items represent is a springboard. It's like a springboard to the very nature of our hearts that produce sin in bulk. Many of these sins, they manifest themselves in different ways. For instance, David murdered Uriah. Why? Because David got busy with Uriah's wife. She got pregnant. David was filled with with lust. And so what happens is, is that lust ended up murdering one of his faithful soldiers. David murdered Uriah because of lust. Brothers and sisters, probably even in this room, through sheer hatred, murder other brothers and sisters. We do that. We do that. What's the difference? I'm telling you, it's a springboard. They're both murder. They're both murder. This is not an exhausted list. It's a springboard to billions of sins that we have to wrestle with. Oh, the range that we can't escape from, we can only be saved from. I hope you guys see that. I was watching a documentary the other day. 
and it was about insects and animals and how they swarm together. It was fascinating. I was intrigued by it. But there was just something about the ant colony that caught my attention. So all these animals, and then they got the ant colony. They have a five-minute part about ants. I was like, this is crazy. And so after that five minutes, I was like, you know what? Bam, I watched three documentaries that deal with ants. I did. I'm not even kidding. Not even lying. Three documentaries that deal with ants because I was like, ants are crazy. This is crazy how ants function. So I watched three documentaries. I am not lying about what I'm about to tell you. I promise you. I went to Cesar Chavez Library to finish writing this sermon, okay? They were closed. I didn't know what time they opened, so they were closed. They didn't open for another, like, 20 minutes. So what I decided to do was just start a little early on this then, and I was at this part with the ants. I was at this part. And so I'm sitting on this, like, uh, concrete bench thing that they had. So I'm sitting on the concrete bench writing what I'm talking about right now. It's just weird because I'm talking about it, and this is what I was writing. And so I was writing what I'm talking about right now, and a stinking ant went across my uh, laptop. I was like, what the heck? I'm writing about ants, and an ant went across my laptop. Everybody seen that Stranger Than Fiction movie with Will Ferrell? When you write and then this stuff actually happens? That's what I thought was going on. I'm like, what the heck? And then we all still have our sin nature. You can't escape from that until we are glorified, right? So we all still have our sin nature. And I don't know why I licked my finger, but I do. So I went like this. I went, oh, man, there's an ant. Bow! And just straight up, got it. Got it. Then did this to make sure it was dead. Because you know how ants can be. You get them, and it's like, oh, they, they're just pretending, and they bounce up and bite you. You know what I mean? So I got it, and then did this number. And then I was getting back into the sermon, and then I was like, wait a second. Where did that ant come from? I looked down, and on my right shoe, it was covered in ants. Oh, my gosh. And I just watched three documentaries dealing with ants. So you can't even imagine they trying to build a house in my shoe. You can't even imagine what I was thinking about. I was thinking, I was like, dang, these ants are all over. It was just strange how it just came to life like that. I was like, whoa. And then in the documentary, there were millions and millions of ants, right? There was these millions of army ants, and uh, uh, their colony got compromised. There was an animal that came, compromised their colony. So what they decided to do is they're going to send out some scouter ants. Find us a new home. Go scout. And so the ants go, like, they communicate like that. And so the ants go, we're like, we're the scouter ants. We're going to go find a new home. And so they go out, and they're looking for a new home, right? And they couldn't find, they have these timers in their head. They know that their colony is getting compromised, right? It's like, okay, so they have this timer in their head. If we don't find a home quick, we got to do something. And they couldn't find it, couldn't find it. So the ants went back, and I was like, look, we couldn't find a good spot. But what we did find were these two, like, plant things. And ants communicate like that. They're like, look, dog, we didn't find a good spot, but we did find these two plants. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to go over and, and set up shop on the plants. And so the ants left their, that colony, uh, that whatever that is, and they went, and they went to these two plants, right, kind of about this far from one another. And they started building their colony right there. This is how they did it. They started linking arms together. And they built their colony. Their colony was made out of ants. It was crazy. That was their new home. Their home was themselves. Ants are crazy, I'm telling you. So they built a habitat made out of themselves. And so now what you have to do in order to get to the heart of that colony, you have to go from layer and layer and layer of ants. And then when you get to the heart, there's the queen pumping out babies. Boom, 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 dishing out these eggs. 
boom, boom, boom. So the queen is at the heart getting busy. And they're still, they're still sending out worker ants to get food and supplies that they need to sustain this ant-built colony. It's insane. And these worker ants, when they go and get the food and supplies they need, nothing can stop them from their desired destination. They will die trying to get there. They are going to get to what they want. If that is not a picture of our heart, then I don't know what is. You have to understand that our hearts isn't this shell that holds sin in it. Our hearts isn't full of sin. Our hearts are sinful. It's not a shell that holds sin in it. Our hearts are sinful. I hope you guys understand that. It's sinful. And just like those ants that wouldn't stop at anything when a wicked, evil thought or desire comes from our hearts, it will stop at nothing until it reaches its destination. Oh, coveting, guys. Coveting comes in all different shapes and sizes, doesn't it? Oh, you covet a man's wife. You covet a woman's husband. You covet the bank account. You covet the car. You covet the house. You covet the, 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 the status of a person. You covet, you covet, you covet. Billions of ways that you covet. Oh, you're deceitful. Billions of ways you're deceitful. You want everybody to think you're good. You're not. You want everybody to think you're fine. You're not. You want everybody to think you've got it going on, but you don't. Deceitful, I'm telling you. Sin manifests itself in so many different ways. Ways. The Pharisees and the scribes, they thought this whole time that if they could just get rid of Christ, they would get rid of this pressure that's been added onto their life. If we could just get rid of him, we can go back to life as we knew it. But it is Christ. He is the one that allows us to understand that you will never get rid of the pressures of life, but you need Jesus to go through the pressures of life. Even if they were to discredit these people, even if you, whoever drug you here, or you don't want to be here, even if you were successful in trying to discredit the church and its people, you will still have pressures in your life. You just ha- it'll just show up in other forms. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the one that could take these situations and give you purpose in them. I'm not going to stand up here and say that Jesus is going to make your life magnificent, but there's beauty in understanding why you're suffering. Oh, my goodness, there's beauty in that. There's beauty in understanding that Christ is in you and that you can have a disposition within your heart that says, I love you, Jesus, but on the outside, all hell is breaking loose. There's beauty in that. There's beauty in that. It's interesting that I was at a first Friday a long time ago, probably about a year ago. And I was in this conversation. And while I was in this conversation, this guy said something that bugged me. It just bugged me. He told me that, well, Wes, I believe all things happen for a reason. It's like, oh, goodness. The thing that bugged me was this guy was an atheist. An atheist. Claiming that and how easy I hear every single Christian say that. But I'm telling you, there is a beauty when you can go beyond. Well, I think all things happen for a reason and shut your mouth and take joy in the beauty that God sustains you through all things. Everybody says that. Oh, don't take comfort in that. 
Take comfort at the feet of Jesus. That's where the comfort comes. That's where the comfort comes. Take comfort in, in a renewed heart. Verse 17 through 23 was an, in, it was an intimate conversation that King Jesus was having with his children. Not only was the Pharisees and the scribes and the townspeople being exposed to sin, but Jesus went back into the room and he laid it out to his disciples. He laid it out. He said, are you too without understanding? But all the gentleness, the gentleness of sanctification. He knew that his disciples needed to understand that they needed to repent. And in repenting, they can grow. They can grow and they can learn. He knew that and they can grow to be more like him. He is the God-man, Yahshua. Don't forget about the hypostatic union of Christ. Jesus knows what his disciples needed. They needed to sit at his feet. My heart breaks for those that are standing on the outside pointing fingers and trying to find fault with our Savior. They're standing on the outside pointing fingers, trying to find fault with his work and his church. But my heart bleeds whenever somebody that claims to know Jesus, they claim to walk with him, they claim that they live for him, but they don't know how to rest at his feet. When things go crazy, they go crazy. They don't know how to rest at the Messiah's feet. They don't know how to take comfort in their hearts being renewed. So what do they do? They find comfort in joining the crowd. They join the crowd. And they begin to point as if they were blind, just like everybody else. Help us, Jesus, to not be the same as them. Help us, Jesus, to not be the same as us. But help us, Jesus, to be the same as you. Let's pray. Father, oh, our hearts, our hearts can be deceitfully wicked. Sin has the power to make a mockery out of the most loving act that mankind could have ever experienced. That while we were yet sinners, your son died for us, God. The reach of his love is long, God. It stretches thousands of years after his ascension to call sinners to be saved. Even right now in this place, today, your love stretches. Father, by the power of your spirit, give somebody an understanding about you today. By your mighty hand, God, take out that hard heart that they may have. Take out that hard heart that doesn't fill you, that doesn't understand you, and give them a new heart so that they can fill you and understand you and hear your voice. Bless them, God. Bless them with a new heart. Father, as people prepare to take communion today and as Wayne is going to lead us today in communion, let us all be reminded about the weight of the cracker that we're going to eat. Let us be reminded that that cracker represents a body that was broken, a body broken, broken and opened up to receive the full weight of our sin. Let us be reminded of the juice that we're going to drink, that this juice, this juice is a reminder of the blood, the blood that covers us, that covers the sin that we committed. Why? So that we can humbly come to the Father 
And just like those disciples asked in verse 17, we can too come to the throne room of God and say, give us understanding, teach us. Oh God, sanctify us. Father, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.